millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Any outlaw regime that has ties to terrorist groups and seeks or possesses weapons of mass destruction is a grave danger to the civilized world and will be confronted. That was a speech made by George Bush in 2003 behind a big banner that said, Mission Accomplished. If you read the comments beneath the speech though, you get comments like, that age like milk, we did it boys, no more terror. And even one that said, this is what a war crime looks like. In the 1980s, Iraq was one of the more powerful Arab states. According to the International Monetary Fund, in 2023, their economy ranks 12th out of 16 Middle Eastern nations. So, how did Iraq fall so badly? Well, our conversation today revolves around its famous dictator at the back end of the 20th century, Saddam Hussein. I really enjoyed this conversation. By the way, thanks to all those who have helped the podcast by giving us a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just spending two seconds to give us a rating out of five massively helps this get to other people. That number next to the star rating decides how things rank on search. But I'll shut up. You guys want to hear about Saddam Hussein. Gentlemen, today we're looking at the rise and fall of Saddam Hussein. I'm going to be with you, PY. Hmm. Did you learn anything about Saddam Hussein at school? Not that I can recall. Maybe was there some involvement in the Cold War that Iraq would have played? Yeah, back end? Yeah, so no details for me. Anything about him? Oh, yeah, like leader in Iraq for a long time. He was killed of, by not natural causes. He was um, <laughs> he was put to death, was he? Sentenced to yeah, death? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Executed. 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 <laughs> I like yeah. sentenced to death. <laughs> the prison break terminology. I'm watching that at the moment. So, yeah. Ben? Yeah, similar. I, I don't think we really ever touched on him at school. Yeah, we don't cover a lot of... A lot of Asia or Middle East in in high school, but I've heard he's a he was a pretty horrible man, pretty ruthless dictator. But that's that's sort of as far as my knowledge extends. When I was younger, because they don't call him Hussein, they call him Saddam. Like that's his colloquial term by his mm. first name. So he was executed in two thousand and six, and it was all in the news. I was around about well, maybe eight or nine at the time. He was 
basically being prepared for execution during the 2006 World Cup. Saddam. Good. We, we sort of base all our time yeah. <laughs> proximity to World Cups. It's, it's uh, BC and AD of the 2006 World Cup. <laughs> well, Saddam sounds like Zidane. And so I <laughs> associated Saddam Hussein with Zinedine Zidane because mm. he sounds like Saddam. And I, without knowing anything about Iraq at all, I had a lot of sympathy for Saddam Hussein as he was being killed. Because in my head, though I cognitively knew that they were different people, I very much associated Saddam Hussein with Zinedine Zidane. And I'm like, how can they kill Zizou? He's, he's just lost the World Cup. He just did it, say- yeah. It was only a headbutt. Like, he had a good game. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, cut him some slack. So we are going to look at the rise and fall of Iraq today. If you were to give a ranking of the Middle Eastern countries in terms of power, roughly just from like from A to E, where would you say Iraq would fall without any background knowledge at all? What would you give Iraq's rating from A to E in terms of its power within the Middle East today? Today, I think I would probably put them behind countries such as United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. Qatar, even. You'd be correct. Mm. Mm. If you were to give it a rating from A to E? A C? <laughs> <laughs> With no background knowledge, that's, that, that's pretty accurate. Throughout the 20th century, particularly in the late 70s and early 80s, Iraq was a B to an A. And yeah. so basically, we're going to think about how did the big power of the Arab world fall? And it revolves all around Saddam Hussein and, to an extent, George Bush and what happened around that. So, do you know what the ancient kingdom of Iraq was called? Like, it had very much a name in, in the ancient world. Is it Persia? Close. That's Iraq. Damn. Not a clue. Babylon. Wow. Babylonia. So, when you read about King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel and the Bible and that sort of stuff, that's Iraq. In the really ancient world, it was Mesopotamia. Mm. And it is still colloquially referred to as Mesopotamia today because it's that part of the Middle East. Assyria? So, Assyria. That was in between, they're really testing my Middle Eastern geography here. If I'm not mistaken, that was in between Palestine and Syria. Okay. Could be very wrong with that. May have caused, <laughs> caused a common explosion. That's okay. That's, that's <laughs> where I think the Assyrian Empire was. I believe, there's a, I believe there's a film coming out shortly called Babylon. Um, Starring Margot Robbie. Yeah. Do you think Margot Robbie's got anything to say about, <laughs> I have, about these complexities? Well, we have two th- friends tonight that are actually going to the uh, premiere of that film in Sydney. Oh my gosh. Do you reckon and they can they're hoping to yeah get a signature with Do you reckon they can put Robbie? the word in for the podcast we can get her on it is the authority to talk about the rise and fall of Iraq next time? Oh we can sure, put yeah. a message. Like yeah. <laughs> if any of you guys know Margot Robbie, nothing gained. <laughs> put the word in. So basically Iraq in the ancient world is the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire eventually does fall to the Persians. So to what's modern day Iraq. So I don't know if you've heard Friendly Geordies go on about the Byzantine Empire in like it's upset it's caused a lot of obsession for him what he's really invested in is the fall of the byzantine empire in the 1400s to the ottoman empire and so they are a big empire from turkey that kind of swallows up a whole lot of southern europe central europe and then the middle east as well and so iraq fell under the ottoman empire it was under control of the ottomans going into world war one who were the ottomans main enemy in world war one Australia. Yeah, represent. So yeah. Gallipoli. <laughs> go, go us. <laughs> Gallipoli, so it's very much actually a non-important battle in the scope of World War One. Mm. Really important in the Australian identity. So 1915, it's basically an attempt 
orchestrated by Winston Churchill to create a third front to increase Australian and, and Allied supplies through to Russia and create an opening there. It doesn't happen. The Ottomans fight very bravely and very well, and the Turks actually repel us in 1915. Did you say Churchill, Cam? Yeah, Churchill. Oh. Yeah. yeah so it's World War One and World War Two. So at, at the end of World War One, he's considered a failure. So he's, yeah. uh, oh, I can't remember his exact title, Some Lord Admiral of the Navy, something to that effect. And Gallipoli's a disaster, and it actually yeah. looks like it's going to end Winston Churchill's political campaign, or political career, I should say. And so, really interestingly, Churchill has this great revival in the end of the 30s. If it wasn't for Neville Chamberlain making the peace deal with Hitler, then Churchill wouldn't have been the hero that he is today. And so it's really interesting to see how things could change. But that is a topic for another day. Mm-hmm. World War I, the Ottomans are fighting against the Allies, primarily Australia initially. Unfortunately, not through any real fault of their own, though this is likely to blow up because we're talking about somewhere in the Mediterranean, it is likely to blow up the comment section with different opinions. <laughs> From my opinion, not through any fault of their own, but through just their allegiance to Germany in World War One, they back the losing horse. And so they lose World War One, and the Ottoman Empire basically gets partitioned at the end of World War One. A guy called Woodrow Wilson. Have you heard of Woodrow Wilson? Oh, yes. American president? Yes. Did you At the end of World War One, Yes. Mm-hmm. And so he has his 14 peace points, which are the demands for the peace at the back end of World War One. One of those is the idea of self-determination, which, as we saw in the Whitlam episode, is the idea that people have the right to govern themselves. So Woodrow Wilson is looking at all these European empires and he's kind of like, hey, everyone has the right to govern themselves. So if you are ethnically not German and you speak Polish and you're Polish in ethnicity, you have the right to have an independent country and not be under the thumb of another country. And so that was one of his peace points that he was pushing. That's a bit awkward for France and Britain because they've got global empires. And so Britain's kind of like, well, no, this wasn't part of the plan. We still very much want to keep our operations in Africa and in the Middle East. So they reach a compromise called a mandate system. So basically, it's a pretty patronizing idea, but it's the idea that a country isn't civilized to govern them, civilized enough to govern themselves. And so they need temporary occupation from another country. And so what happened is after World War I, the Middle East was run on a system of mandates. So you have the mandate of Mesopotamia, you have the mandate of Palestine, where Britain has basically partitioned and divided up the Middle East with the idea that they're going to govern them temporarily. Off the top of your head, what's Britain's primary interest in Mesopotamia? I don't really know what's out in Mesopotamia, to be honest. Was Mesopotamia the Middle East? Yeah, like part of the Middle East. Do oil. they like oil? Surely. Yeah, oil. It's, is, uh-huh. is the answer always oil? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Anything at least. <laughs> and so basically, Britain is keen to protect its oil interests in the Middle East. And it's the heyday of the Industrial Revolution. They need oil for their factories. And so basically, they have a mandate system where they still control Mesopotamia. Eventually, that gets too tough to govern. There's too many revolts and too many uprisings from the Iraqi people that want independence. And so what Britain does is they agree to give them an Arabic king. And it's like, okay, we'll give you someone who's not British to govern your country, but we want them to be working in our best interests. We want to make the pick ourselves. We want to pick the Arabian king or the Arabic king for you because we have all these oil interests that we don't want to lose. They appoint someone. His name. Could it be? Could it be Saddam? Not Saddam. Oh. King Faisal. King Faisal. Faisal. Not, the, not the same Faisal as the one we looked at. Faisal controlling history. I, when I listened back to our podcast last time, I did realise we never actually explained who Faisal was. So when I was editing up the podcast, mm. 
we just jump straight to Batista and Piers Morgan, Piers Brosnan controversy. We never actually touch on who Faisal was. So in final score, he is the star of the show, I would argue. <laughs> I think. No, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I'd completely forgotten about Faisal, to be honest, until we brought it up in the last show. I was like, "What? Are you, why are you guys laughing at Faisal? What's so funny? He's the, he's the ground steward at the game, and he's the comedic relief actor in the movie Final Score, which if you haven't watched it yet, pause pause the podcast and check that out, then come back to us. But yeah, King Faisal is in charge of Iraq, and it's really controversial because he's a puppet king. He's not really serving the Iraqi interests. And so uh, throughout his time, there's several uprisings and there's several challenges to his rule. couple look like they're going to be successful, but they don't end up being particularly successful. It's around about this time, so it's in this era of Iraq, that Saddam Hussein is born. And Saddam Hussein has a very tragic childhood. So his mother tried to abort him. His father wasn't in the picture. I believe, if I could be mistaken, I believe he, he actually died. I don't think he left. I think he died. And then Saddam was raised by his stepmother, sorry, by his mother and his stepfather, of which his stepfather was extremely abusive. Mm-hmm. And so, like, Saddam would repeatedly be beaten from pretty much infancy. And so... People looking back are thinking that this has shaped a lot of Saddam's thinking and why Saddam ran a pretty rough empire and didn't have what the West would call a high respect for human rights is because he grew up in the roughest context possible. Mm. And so he's growing and he's growing in his youth. At the same time, he's seeing all of these revolts against the British and against King Faisal. And this is capturing his imagination and shaping his desire to go into politics. So... Just going back a bit, Cam, uh, when and how did like Britain get control of Iraq and Iran in yeah, the first so, place? So at, at the end of World War One, basically, yeah. So because the Ottoman Empire lost and the Ottoman okay. Empire was fractured and broken up, the winning powers had to decide what to do with them. Yeah. And so as the winning power in World War One, Britain basically assumed control of Mesopotamia and Palestine. Okay, cool. Yeah, I thought maybe um, they were like a colony before World War One. No, yeah. So the French got Lebanon, mm. and so Britain got Palestine and Mesopotamia. And so it was partitioned basically amongst the winning powers. I see, I see. So we're going to go all the way to 1958. And what happens is Faisal's gone. Mm. And oh, poor Faisal. Yeah. How did Faisal go? Was he, was he killed? Was he... The original Faisal's rule came to an end in 33. So he has a son, and then he has a son. So we, go, we get to Faisal II. Mm. And Faisal II is 23 years old. And he gets killed by the revolutionaries. And so Abdul Karim Qasim establishes an Iraqi republic. Now, what happens is Saddam Hussein's like, okay, this is free game now. If we've gotten rid of our original government, I want to get rid of this guy. And so he is part of a plot to overthrow Qasim in 1959. The plot is unsuccessful and Saddam flees to Syria. And then he actually flees to go to Egypt where he studies at university. And according to people at who he studied with at university, apparently he wasn't at classes or anything because the whole time he was plotting a coup and just like... Mm. <laughs> coup d'etat. <laughs> not, not how I spent my university years, but um, I respect his hustle. Just like, yeah, I want to get back to Iraq and plot another coup. So he's basically, by the time he comes back to Iraq, he has got a PhD in... Coos. Coos. <laughs> <laughs> so in... Well, not- how you even go about devoting your time to plot a coup. It's not like he's in the library, like kind of reading books, how to coup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just trying to get people on, on board with him. On it's side. like WikiHow articles. Yeah. 
So he comes back in 1963. So what happens in February of 1963, the Bath Party overthrows Kasim's government. Then in November... Sorry, who's the Bath Party? Oh, right. Good question. I haven't actually established this. So the Bath Party is Saddam Hussein's party that he belongs to. And so did he belong to them prior to his university? Yes. He was just sort of like a... A young bath, yeah, if you will. (laughs) So it's spelled B A apostrophe A T H. So the Bath Party, it's an Arab socialist party, was an Arab socialist party that was all about the unification of the Arab world. So linking up Syria, Palestine, and Iraq, and effectively having a united Arab kingdom together that's ruled on secular principles rather than on Islamic principles. So Saddam Hussein's part of that party. At the end of the day. Is he extremely ideological? Not really. It's just a vehicle for him to further his own ambitions and also create the image of Iraq that he wants. But he's not a disciple to the ideology, if that makes sense. Mm. So in February of 1963, the Ba'ath Party successfully gets rid of Kasim's government. And then in November of 1960, Saddam comes back when the Ba'ath Party returns. But then when he's back in November of 1963, the Ba'ath Party is removed by another coup. So oh my gosh. it's just yeah. There's coups deluxe. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Fast forward to 1968, and the Bath Party get back in with another oh, coup. Oh my word! And so can't trust anyone. <laughs> so Saddam Hussein is one of the leaders of that coup. Well, he's got the PhD in it after all. He's mm, the guy to go the, to. He's the guy. Yeah. And so Iraq's back into power. Oh, sorry, the Bath Party's back into power in Iraq, and it's interesting because the 70s actually give the Ba'ath Party, a chance to really surge forward. Now, Saddam Hussein, he's not the president of Iraq at this point. He's he, In the 70s, he grows his powers. He becomes head of the military. The guy who was president was actually a guy called Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar. Or al-Bakar. So he's the president of Iraq during the 70s. Interestingly, in the 70s, there's an oil crisis. We actually saw this in the Gulf Whitlam episode. The, like I said before, the economic yep. conditions are quite yep. similar to today shortage of oil and high inflation. The oil crisis is basically triggered by the Arab world standing up to America. So America has intervened in on behalf of Israel. So in 1967, there's the Six-Day War in which Israel kind of gains territory uh, across different countries in the Arab world. So countries like Jordan and Egypt and so forth. 73 is basically the Arab world strikes back and their attempt to create a delayed counterattack. America supports Israel in this war. And so what the Arab world does is, hey, we basically run your economy. Hmm. We have the we have oil and we have the foundation of your energy and we're going to limit the amount we give to you. And it's basically holding America hostage to say, hey, change your foreign policy. Saddam sees an opportunity here. He's like, hey, all of you guys are limiting the amount of oil that you give to America. And that's causing a huge premium on oil because there's less of it. What he does is he's like, well, you guys can do that. I'm just going sh- to ship oil to America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, we can get heaps rich off of this, you idiots. And kind of breaks the Arab Union rank and is a hero in the eyes of America because he is providing oil to a lot of the world and is basically increasing the accessibility of oil. This allows the Ba'ath Party to basically fund Iraq to become the dom- one of the dominant powers in the Arab world. So he imp- introduces things like free healthcare. Literacy rates go up massively. He also increases the military by 40%. It's a mm. pretty pretty big hike in the military. So throughout the 70s, it's Saddam who's running the show. He's not president, but 
all the power is in his hands, as he's the one who's in control of not just the military, but now a military increased by 40% of its power. At the same time, al-Bakr is getting old and he's getting a bit more frail. And so basically, in 1979, al-Bakr is thinking of merging Iraq with Syria. After all, that's the Ba'ath Party's platform. We want to see a united Arab world. Saddam Hussein basically doesn't like this because in a union between Iraq and Syria, he loses his post. And okay. he, he gets, like, he, he loses in this deal. This is what I mean, that he's not devoted to Ba'ath Party ideology. He's very flexible with, with his Ba'ath Party ideology. 1979. Basically, what happens is he goes to al-Bakr and he says, stop this. Otherwise, like, I've got the military. I have the power in this situation. Resign, step down. I'm going to be the new president. And al-Bakr gives in to that demand. He then consolidates his power in a pretty brutal way. I'm going to show you what happens. Reaction. Oh, my gosh. You can actually get to see one of the most chilling, annihilatingly chilling, actually, videos ever made in the 20th century. It shows the moment at which Saddam Hussein, the actual moment at which Saddam Hussein seized power in Iraq for himself. We don't have that moment in uh, Germany. We don't have that moment in Russia. Okay. Um, so I've put up on Paywise TV the video of Saddam Hussein's purge. If you don't know what we're talking about, I'd recommend watching this. Basically, so we, we've got Saddam Hussein right now in front of the, the, the party apparatus, and he's calling out names for who was involved in an assassination conspiracy. And so... It's, and so are these, are these truthful claims or are these... He's just fabricating them to get people out. Yeah, fabricated by all accounts. So it's very much a purge rather than a fair trial. And so if we're watching the footage right now, Saddam Hussein is basically saying these are the conspirators involved. And imagine, like, put yourself in the shoes of someone in the Ba'ath Party, like, waiting to hear if your name's called out or not. Mm. Incredible. Genius. So he's just announcing to the public... Whether, what are the people, what did they do? What did they? Yeah, assassination attempt involved in a conspiracy, a plot to overthrow the government. To assassinate who? Saddam Hussein. Oh. And again, remember, al has just gone. So now Saddam's the guy that's in charge. He's in retirement? Or did did he die? Yeah, retirement. And so, sorry, he calls out these names and then what happens to these people? We're watching them. They they get removed from the the event. So not every conspirator is executed. But uh, out of the 60, I could be mistaken him, numbers off my head here, out of the 64 conspirators, 22 are killed, I believe. And the rest imprisoned. Wow. So I feel like I'm thinking like, you know how when you've got nothing to share in class and you're just anxious that the teacher's going to call on your mom <laughs> to share something, like, is this the sort of same sort of gravitas we're talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I still feel like that in meetings at work. Sometimes <laughs> just like, oh, don't ask me, don't ask me. It feels like that in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, basically, it's it's really horrifying footage, and it's interesting. We don't have. I think this is a point that a guy called Christopher Hitchens makes, and I'm not. I'm going to actually push against what a lot of Christopher Hitchens says in about the later years of Iraq. But Christopher Hitchens says we don't have the night of long knives on tape, the night where Hitler purged the SA in mm. and consolidated his power. We have this on tape. And it's pretty harrowing footage the more you think about it and the more you look at it. And again, put yourself in the shoes of those people that are waiting to see if they get read out by the by Saddam. Yeah, is that them, like, reacting? Yeah, so there's like, people... are they kind of blowing up, like, wait, I didn't do anything, what do you no, mean? No, the opposite. So mm. it's people trying to project 
I'm innocent by having outrage at the conspirators. So how dare you try and kill our leader? Basically trying to project to Saddam how much they are loyal to him or how loyal they are to him. This greatly consolidates Saddam Hussein's power because not only are key rivals eliminated, everyone is scared to consider rivaling Saddam Hussein. And it's from this point forward that he has an iron grip on power until 2003. Actions of Iran have shocked the civilized world. Go, let's go, let's go. Spread everything. Our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages. If we're going to go, then we need to go now. Okay. So, before we actually get into Saddam's policies as the uncontested leader of Iraq, have you guys heard of Sunni and Shia Islam at all? Yes, I have. I hear they're, they're in a lot of conflict to what Islamic sort of belief systems, is that? Kind of. They're, they're the difference, and I'm not an Islamic scholar, so there will be people who are sure listening to this that will know the difference in greater detail than me. Basically, the difference between Sunni and Shias is historical. It has implications for beliefs, but it's more a difference in structure and authority and a difference okay. in lineage. So basically, Sunnis and Shias disagree as to who should have continued the caliphate after Muhammad the Prophet. So Muhammad dies, and according to Sunnis, it's a guy called Abu Bakr. Basically, he's someone who was considered a good religious authority and had good standing with Muhammad the Prophet. They're majority of Muslims. Shias, on the other hand, believe it went to Muhammad's son-in-law and cousin, Ali. And so the difference is, I guess, for Shia Islam, the Shias kind of believe that they're a more pure version of Islam because they descend from the blood, like their leadership comes from the bloodline of Muhammad the Prophet. On the other hand, Sunnis believe in an authority structure that was decided by a council rather than divine inspiration, if that makes sense. They do believe that it was divinely inspired, mm. but with less gravitas and less authority than bloodline. And so basically, this has created a huge split in Islam that has lasted till the present day. Usually, countries are either majority Shia or majority Sunni. Iraq is a hotbed of both. And that makes it really tough. And again, these were these were boundaries that were the, the modern Middle East, they're boundaries that were drawn by British people, not actually drawn by Middle Easterners themselves. And so Iraq is split to the east. We have Shias that have a majority, not a huge majority, but a majority. To the west, we have Sunnis. And then in the north, we have a group called the Kurds. So Shias and Sunnis, same ethnicity, both Arab, but different religions. Sunnis are Sunni in religion, but they are a different ethnicity. And so there's a group called the Kurds. They number about 30 million in the Middle East. They're ethnically different to Arabs. For a long time, they've wanted independence, and the Kurds exist in Syria, in Iran, in Iraq, and in Turkey. Most of them are in Turkey. For a long while, they've wanted independence, but they haven't got it. And so, to the north of Iraq, there's Kurdish Sunni Muslims. Point being, this is essential to understanding Iraq. There are three distinct groups, and each of them have different interests at play. Three groups. Sunnis? Yep. What were the other two? Shia, Shia and Kurds. And Kurds, okay. I knew there was three groups. Yeah, three groups. I just need the labels. Labels. <laughs> yeah, and labels are important. So now I'm saying, if you have a guess, what would you guess he, which category you reckon he belongs into? He seems like a Kurd. He's not a Kurd. Not a Kurd. Mm, I'd be guessing 
Sunnis. He is a Sunni. Uh-huh. But lots he's there is a but here. Mm. The Ba'ath Party. Yeah. They're secular. So Saddam Hussein, mm. he's culturally Sunni, but in practice he's not particularly religious. He supports Islam and he built a lot of mosques in Iraq and wanted to build bridges with Muslim people, but he wasn't particularly religious and devout himself. This is all really important because in the 1980s, Saddam runs into his first big issue, war with Iran. So, what you need to know about Iran? I'll give you a 30-second snapshot. Iran, Persia, so it used to be the Kingdom of Persia, formerly run by a guy called the Shah. And the Shah was on very good relations with America. What happened was there was a revolution in 1979 where the Shah was overthrown and replaced with a new Islamic government. It was a Shia Islamic government. So Shia Islam is in Iran. Iran's to the east of Iraq. And so basically it's this, and the world largely portrays it as a fanatical uprising. Imagine if the Pope was ruling Italy. That's kind of what's going on mm-hmm. in Iran when is an Ayatollah, Ruhollah Khomeini, he becomes the leader of Iran. Saddam's pretty worried because at this point, he's got a few different interests at play. He is worried, so he's trying to hold this coalition of three different groups together. He is worried that this Shiite fanaticism will spill over into Iraq. And that's one of his huge concerns at the time. Iran is also very unpopular popular in America's books by now because they supported the Shah. And I don't know, have you seen the movie Argo with Ben Affleck? I have not seen it. I don't think so. So it was a hostage crisis where a lot of Americans were held hostage by the Iranian government. Mm. In so and the American the American embassy wasn't respected by the Iranian people, and so that's kind of where a lot of the hostility to, between America and Iran comes from. From Iran's point of view, America meddles in the Middle East way more than it should, and so basically what happens is Saddam Hussein actually invades Iran. A couple of different other reasons why. So. Saddam wants control over the Shat al-Arab waterway, which is a key waterway between the two nations. And he also wanted to have control of an oil-rich province in Iran called Khuzestan. And so he launches the invasion of Iran. Saddam's a pretty calculated guy, and he's probably done the maths here and has realized if he invades Iran, who's going to come to his help? America. America. Mm. And so he launches an invasion in, in 1980. And he knows that he's basically got America's support. So America supports Iraq. And we think that at that time, we think that Iraq's going to comfortably win. They don't. The Iranian soldiers are incredibly devout and incredibly committed to the cause. Because not only is their country being invaded, it's viewed as a foreign war against Islam. The Americans are helping Iraq and they are very willing to die for the cause. And as time goes on, a stalemate between the two countries basically ensues. Mm. Other issues as well. Iraq suffers economically, not just because of the war, but because of the oil crisis. So the 1980s saw an oil glut, which is basically like a glutton is someone who has too much of something. Mm. So an oil glut is when there's too much oil available. Think about it. For the 1970s, the Arab world's holding all of this oil and they're like, no, we're not giving it to you. Eventually they release that oil and put it back into the market. So the price of oil goes down and that really affects Saddam Hussein, who's put the entire economy on oil and now the oil prices drop significantly. Mm. And so they struggle in the 1980s. So you've got the war. You've got that. Then America actually kind of plays both sides of the war. So what happens is officially, their official policy is that there is an arms embargo to Iran. But what Ronald Reagan does is he f- he sells weapons to Iran and then uses that money to fund revolutionaries in Nicaragua. So 
basically, yeah, you didn't think they'd get into this chat. Oh, I'm my saying. gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, shout out to our listener from Honduras. We are. <laughs> and our listener from Kiribati. I think there are two we want to shout out today. We appreciate you. Yeah. Someone from Kiribati listening to... I just, I just, <laughs> anyway, what happens? Stalemate in the war. And basically, they sign a peace deal in the end, at the end of the 1980s. Saddam Hussein hasn't come away from that looking very good. He's launched an invasion. It hasn't worked. And he didn't get what he was after. And the economy is in a lot of trouble. If you're Saddam Hussein, what do you do here? What do you think he does? What do you think he does, Ben? Uh, I, do you, Well, I feel like you can't withdraw. You've got to... Does he double down? Does double he go down. harder? Well, the, the the truce has been signed. So, oh, yes, peace with Iran. But I like your thinking. Yeah, I, I feel like he's, like, he's already been sneaky enough. To... I feel like what's stopping him from from just breaking that truce and, and going getting to work again? Yeah, I feel like he he needs to show um some power. He wants to show that he's still the top dog in Iraq. Is that completely off? No, no, no. Yeah, you're, you're pretty close here. And, but it's not Iran. He goes after Kuwait. Oh, so what, yeah. what did they do to deserve <laughs> this? <laughs> the West, I think the Western media has largely been very unsympathetic towards Saddam's point of view here. There's a group called OPEC, and OPEC is basically the Middle Eastern oil regulation industry, for lack of a better word, that agree to how much you're allowed to import and export of oil each year. It's a way of basically regulating the oil price. What Q8 does is Q8 exceeds its OPEC limits, mm. and it exceeds way more oil than they have agreed to. So does that then make them quite responsible for the price dropping a lot yes. because they're exporting more than they should? Exactly. Yeah. And so Saddam's kind of like, you're crippling our economy here. We're already in an oil crisis. We're dev- economically devastated by the war. The other issue is, is again, these boundaries were drawn by British people. It's like, what is the difference between Kuwait and Iraq? Mm. We didn't come up with these boundaries. British people came up with these boundaries. And so what he does is in 1990, Saddam invades Kuwait. And so he's thinking that potentially America's going to stay out of this because he was the American hero in the 70s and the 80s. In the 70s, he gave them oil. And in the 80s, he stood up to Iran. America doesn't. And mm. George Bush Sr., the president at the time, launches something called Operation Desert Storm. Saddam Hussein's army just gets completely rolled by the Americans. And Saddam is massively left with egg in his face. Sorry, so why have the U.S.? not supported in this case are they getting a lot of oil from kuwait yes okay so it's affecting their oil interest massively yep and so basically operation desert storm sees the end of saddam's government and so no loyalty it sees the end of saddam's army and basically he's left with egg in his face and in the 90s that's when iraq is devastated economically so they actually start to see the decline of the country well before bush jr actually goes on to invade iraq U.S. sanctions Iraq really badly. And if you're Russia right now, so Russia's getting sanctioned very heavily by the West. Russia's got multiple industries. So it's got oil and gas, and it's a huge landmass. It's got lots of reserves. That They can stand up. It's Obviously, they prefer not to be sanctioned. They can stand up to the sanctions way better than Iraq can. And Iraq is devastated by the sanctions. A guy called Dennis Halliday, he was the director of the UN Relief Program. He actually resigned from his position because he deemed the sanctions too immoral. 500,000 Iraqis have, are believed to have been killed as a result of the sanctions. From, wow. Yeah, lack of, uh, lack of food, lack of hygiene, mm-hmm. and basically didn't get the basic standards of living required. Yeah, it seems these sanctions, those that bear the brunt are those that have such little influence on, on why they're even there in the first place because 
Saddam could easily get the food he needs and, yeah. the, and the protection he needs. But. And interestingly, one of my school students is Iraqi and his grandfather actually met Saddam Hussein because Saddam Hussein would frequently in, this, in the 90s would visit all the different villages and have dinner with the people. So he's going on this mass campaign to try and rebuild public support. And what we have to credit Saddam Hussein with is he had an excellent knowledge of Iraqi people and the Iraqi landscape. He actually predicts ISIS before it happens. Mm. So he's got an incredible knowledge of his area. And part of that was because he actually frequently met with the Iraqi people. And so he went on the dinner tour in the 1990s. Basically, fast forward to 1997, the International Atomic Agency inspects Iraq and decides that, oh, sorry, and rules, not decides, that it has all the necessary components for weapons of mass destruction. So that's a pretty nebulous term in itself. Like, mm. what is a weapon of mass destruction? But they deemed that Saddam Hussein is capable of causing mass destruction with chemical weapons and with nuclear weapons. And so basically, in 1998, he dismantles his weapons armory. So Saddam Hussein, 1998, according to our best reports, dismantles his weapons armory. We're going to skip all the way to 2002. Bush declares war on Iraq. Mm. Why? 9-11. What does Saddam Hussein have to do with 9-11? Wait, have I got that wrong? No, 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 you're exactly <laughs> right. 9 is the pretext. True, because where's, where's Bin Laden from? He's from Saudi Arabia, but he's yeah. based in Afghanistan and being okay. protected by the Taliban in Afghanistan at this point. Yeah. Oh, did Saddam Hussein kind of, I know orchestrates the word, but was he like paying the people to do it? No. And I actually set you up for a true question. Saddam, yeah. that's, Saddam had the exact same response. Like, what on earth do mm. I have to do with 9-11? So out of the uh, 9-11 attackers, uh, Egyptian, Saudi, an Emirati person, and Saddam Hussein's like, these are all the countries that I have beef with. Like these, I, I, I'm a secular Sunni. I hate Sunni fanaticism, which is where a lot of the militant Islam came from. Mm. And he's like, I, I hate this. I want to get rid of radical Islam as much as the next guy. I'm a secular leader. Why on earth am I being invaded? Bush gave a couple of different reasons. Number one was that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So he's, but this is this was the repeated line that Bush said at the time. Saddam's got WNDs, and only the, only the Americans be, can be trusted with those. You know, <laughs> no one else can dare have one of them. So pretty much the the structure of this podcast is: it seems like we're very pro West for the first half, then it's going to sound like we're very anti West for the second <laughs> half of the podcast here. This is where it starts looking really bad for the Americans. So he accuses Saddam of having WMDs. He also accuses Saddam of harboring al-Qaeda terrorists, so kind of what he accused the Taliban of. Okay. So a lot of al-Qaeda people were in Afghanistan at the time because the Taliban gave them basic protection. That was true. Bush then extends that to Iraq, which, as far as we can see, wasn't true. And what actually happens is these circumstances create al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's not that al-Qaeda was in Iraq. It's that what Bush did created al-Qaeda mm. in Iraq. And then basically he also declares the war on terror. So I'm sure you would have heard that term before. Yep. Like war on drugs, war on terror. Anytime a war is declared against an abstract concept, what do you define as victory? It's very tough <laughs> to define what victory is. And so basically this was part of a crusade against authoritarian states in the Middle East. Which authoritarian states? Well, the ones that Bush doesn't personally like. And so in 2003, the invasion began of Iraq. Bush wanted to go through Turkey because that allows them to advance south. Turkey said no, and so they actually went through Kuwait. And again, 
Yeah. Mm. Q8 owes them one after Operation Desert Storm. It's true. So they that and that's advancing from the southeast and pushing up towards Baghdad. Baghdad's kind of in the middle. And so they use a tactic called shock and awe, which is basically we're going to blow them away with military power. The citizens will see this and they will be in awe of what we're doing and then they'll join our side because we'll be seen as liberators. At the end of 2003, Saddam Hussein gets captured and he is arrested and held by the American government. What the American government does is they control Iraq temporarily. So the Americans are in charge of Iraq and they appoint a preliminary government. The preliminary government is made up of proportional representation. So who's the majority group in Iraq again? The Shiite. Oh, no, it's all it's all a big hotbed. You it it that is a hotbed, hotbed, but there is a majority group. Okay. Is it a big majority or is it Slim majority, a, but... Yeah, okay. Well, it's a one in three. <laughs> the Shiites. The Shiites. Let's go. So the Shiites are the majority group in Iraq. And so the logic is, well, we're going to do proportional representation. The majority group gets the president. If you're a Sunni, though, this is an outrage. You've had a Sunni rule Iraq for the last 30 years. And so, basically, there's a huge reaction to what is going on in the preliminary government. And at the same time, the Shiites are like, this is our chance. We want a Shiite state that's run like Iran. And so, in 2004, a guy called Muqtada al-Sada led a full-scale uprising against the preliminary government and wanted to establish... Another coup. They're yeah, just, <laughs> well, thick and fast. Yeah, the, the story of Iraq, mm. and he wants to establish a Shia government. Unsuccessful. The other issue as well is what's Iraq's great resource? Oil, oil. oil. And what happens is U.S. oil companies start getting huge contracts. Exxon Mobil, Conoco Phillips, they all kind of meet with Dick Cheney, who's the vice president of America at the time. He features in Family Guy a lot. He's the guy okay. that shoots at the. I think at Walmart he shoots. <laughs> I can't remember quite the cutaway. It's, he's, he's, he's in a yeah, lot of family because yeah. Family Guy was huge in the early 2000s yeah. and Seth MacFarlane was really anti-Bush. So there's a lot of Dick Cheney jokes in the early seasons of Family Guy. So basically the preliminary government is set up with a Shiite leader. Sunnis don't like it. Shiites think it's not going far enough. They want a state sim- more similar to Iran that's run by a cleric and run by a religious authority figure within the Shiite branch. And so eventually the elections roll around at the end of 2005. And sure enough, because it's democracy, the Shiites get the majority because they hold the majority of the population and you just vote for your tribal group. Mm. A lot of Sunnis refuse to vote because they're like, this is ridiculous. Our government was a legitimate government. Foreign guys have gotten rid of it. Now we're obviously not going to win because we're a minority group in the country. And so they boycott. The American government makes another controversial decision. They ban the Ba'ath Party. Now, banning, wow. that doesn't just fa- affect the elections. Because the military was tied to the party, every soldier that fought for Iraq's and Saddam's army was now out of a job. If you are a soldier and you've been fired by the new regime, that's where you start getting radicalized. Mm. And so all. Sounds like another coup is brewing. Well. <laughs> That so, seems like it just seems like a really dumb thing to do to alienate yeah. the entire military is that, that are trained to you know be uh, good in combat. Yeah, <laughs> and it's it's largely seen as the biggest blunder. So Christopher Hitchens, the guy that I mentioned before, he was really interesting at the time because he was seen as quite liberal 
And at the, it was like a liberal hero in the 80s and the 90s. In the 2000s, he gets really supportive of Saddam Hussein's... Oh, sorry, of George Bush's war against Saddam Hussein. And everyone's like, what the heck? This this guy's now kind of pegged with who everyone else is calling right-wing nutjobs. But his basic argument was Saddam Hussein was so bad that he needed to be toppled. And the people defending Saddam don't realise just how bad Saddam was. I don't disagree with Christopher Hitchens' assessment of Saddam... The bit that I think was missing in Christopher Hitchens' argument, and he's passed away now, but if he was here in the podcast, he'd obviously school me in the debates. I'm not making any claim to be able to outdo the fantastic rhetoric that he has. Mm -hmm. But the argument that I think he misses is the issue wasn't really Saddam himself. It was the Ba'ath Party. And history has proven that banning the Ba'ath Party was the big blunder that the Americans made. So basically, they ban the Ba'ath Party. All these soldiers don't have a job. They go and join Al-Qaeda. And then mm. what happens is like, see, there is Al-Qaeda in, in Iraq. It's like, no, 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 no. You created Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so, yeah. Wow. yeah. So 2005, elections roll around, majority Shiite government, but then there's Al-Qaeda's got a very strong presence in Iraq. And so America is hoping to withdraw, but Bush basically keeps soldiers in his whole presidency. He actually, at some point, has to increase the amount of soldiers in Iraq. Tony Blair, up to that episode of The Crown, yeah? UK Prime Minister. Yeah. Mm. He So he was very supportive of the Iraq war and a lot of British soldiers were there. Also, John Howard was supportive. Mm. And Poland was also supportive. So they were kind of the big... That was the coalition of the big four at the time that, that played a huge role in the Iraq. What was... Do you know Poland's... Like, what's their stake in this game? Do they... Uh, huge cultural ties and huge geopolitical ties to America and Britain. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So basically, it's... It's a bit of a disaster... And Al-Qaeda's got a very strong presence in Iraq. Bush is convinced that this has been a success. And he's like, well, we've got democracy now. It's like, yeah, but at what cost? And Al-Qaeda's got a very strong presence. It's not until 2011 that Obama actually withdraws soldiers from Iraq. They're back there very quickly. So when Obama pulls out of Iraq, basically it gets a bit crazy. So more coups. Mm. <laughs> Tonight... I am announcing that the American combat mission in Iraq has ended. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over, and the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. In 2012, the Prime Minister of Iraq is a Shiite called Nuri al-Maliki, al-Malaki, I'm not quite sure on the pronunciation, never heard it said out loud. He accused the Vice President, who was a Sunni, Tariq al-Hashemi, of organizing terrorist attacks. So he accused him of being part of the Al-Qaeda group. Basically, this forced the the vice president to actually, the Sunni vice president, to withdraw and retreat into Kurdish Iraq. Because again, Sunnis and Kurds have the same religion. So that's a safe place for him to go. Basically, the Sunnis viewed this as a coup and they actually responded with terrorist attacks killing 170 people. Mm. This it's, 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 it's like Iraq is an absolute mess at this point. Yeah. It gets even worse, though, because ISIS gets involved. Mm -hmm. So, have you guys ever heard of the Arab Spring? I have, yes. It started in Tunisia. RIP, 1-0, yeah. which will do. <laughs> it, started, it started in Tunisia, and basically it was a movement that spread across the Arabian Peninsula where people were rising up against authoritarian governments in support of democracy. So it spreads its way to Syria, and Syria is led by a guy called Bashar al-Assad. So you might have heard of a guy called Assad before in the media. Basically, the Syrian civil war is its own podcast topic in itself because it's a little bit complex. To make it as basic as possible, there's three competing groups with then the Kurds also getting involved as well. 
First group is Assad's government. They're supported by Russia and Iran, and they just want to keep Assad's government at place. The second group is the alternate government, and they want to overthrow the government and replace it with what they advocate for as democracy. That's supported by Saddam Hussein. Sorry, that's supported by Saudi Arabia and Qatar. The third group is ISIS, and they get involved. So basically, what happens is ISIS comes from Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda was the radical Islamic group in the west of Iraq that were really angry with America's toppling of Saddam Hussein, amongst other issues as well. They start to rise in power, and as this Syrian civil war is breaking out, the leader of ISIS, he's a guy called Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, say... Done great with the pronunciation. <laughs> well done. Damn. I had to like pause for a second to make sure I was writing that one. So Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He sends a guy called Muhammad al-Jalani to go to Syria to basically fight al-Qaeda's war in Syria. And he's like, this is a perfect opportunity. It's a civil war. We can send someone in there and we can gain some territory. And they do. And they gain territory quite quickly. What happens is Baghdadi starts to get worried that al-Jalani is going to get really powerful. And so ISIL originally starts as ISIL, so the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant. It then becomes ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. And so he basically tries to then swallow up al-Jalani back under his control. It's like, no, 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 you're actually under my control the whole time. Al-Jalani doesn't like that. There's an internal conflict within, and al-Baghdadi wins, and it becomes ISIS. So ISIS is now a, a broad-banded group operating in both Iraq and Syria, and they're trying to establish a radical Sunni Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. So ISIS now has not only a heavy foothold in Syria, but also in Iraq. Coincidentally, it's also the time, this is the time that America intervenes in the Syrian civil war. So they fight with the Kurds to fight against ISIS. And so they're like fighting against one third of the enemies. In Iraq though, ISIS has rapidly spread and they're gaining a lot of territory. Have you heard of a city called Mosul? I have not. So one of the key cities in Iraq behind Baghdad, basically that gets taken by ISIS. And so America gets back in, in into Iraq. So Obama withdrew them in 2011 and America gets back in in 2014, if I'm not mistaken. So basically Iraq is a massive mess as it stands. Mm. Eventually, because of Russia and America, ISIS gets beaten. And by the end of the 2010s, ISIS isn't much of a power. Baghdadi actually gets killed under the Trump administration. So you might remember Trump making an announcement about the defeat of ISIS. That was because yeah. Baghdadi was killed. Mm. So Iraq is now living in a largely post-ISIS era. It's still a bit of a mess politically because these three groups can't be unified. And so 2021, they had their elections. It couldn't get resolved. So because there's so many different groups, people were forming different coalitions all the time and there was no clear majority party. It eventually got resolved in October 2022. So it took a year to kind of mm. fix what was going on. So where does it stand with Iraq right now? Well, it's a country that's got three distinct cultural groups that have been devastated by America's input. You ask most Iraqi people, is is Iraq better in a post-Saddam era than in a pre-Saddam era or in Saddam's era? Most that I have spoken to, and it is a small sample size, yep. but most that I have spoken to have said it was better under Saddam because it was stable. Hmm. Wow. I... I feel like all I've heard is is sort of just how bad and not to say that Saddam Hussein wasn't a bad man. I'm I'm sure he did did horrible things in order to maintain his power, but yeah, I think this this Western narrative is is perhaps there's more than meets the eye, it seems, than what we've been kind of told. 
And it is worth pointing out that the Iraq war was pretty unpopular at the time. So it yeah, started okay. off as pretty popular and then it rapidly lost popularity throughout the 2000s. But... Was that about sort of people seeing through Bush's reasoning or was that more just we're just unnecessarily losing lives on in a foreign country? Yeah, both. So weapons of mass destruction were never found. There was a chemical yeah. fa- chemical weapons factory found in 2003, but these big WMDs, they were never found. And so people were like, you toppled a leader that was the legitimate leader of his country, used completely different methods to what you would use. But at what point, if we just topple dictators right now, well, we've got like 30 more to conquer. Or if we just mm. topple people with different political systems, why is it unfair that people who believe in authoritarianism mm. want to topple us. Like, that's completely legitimate from their point of view. So. Interesting. And um, and so what was the, uh, I don't think we quite touched on it, like Saddam Hussein's, was he executed? Yes. So, yeah, how did that come about? Who was in charge of that? So the Iraqi government that was elected at the end of 2005 were responsible for executing Saddam Hussein. His trial is really interesting. It's televised. And you can watch footage from from the trial. And Saddam Hussein, he says a lot of insightful stuff. So there was a guy from the, if I'm not mistaken, from the CIA. I can't remember his name. He speaks on Democracy Now. I included him in a video. I can't quite remember his name off the top of my head. But if you just search up Democracy Now, interrogating Saddam, he'll be, it'll be first search result. Basically, he was the one who was tasked from the American government's point of view with interviewing Iraq, interviewing Saddam in preparation for his execution. And he makes some pretty interesting allegations. He says that this was not an unreasonable guy at all. He was like, this guy was perfectly reasonable and actually made a lot of sense on a lot of issues. He also said, you get rid of me, you get radical Islam in 10 years, completely ruining Iraq. What happens to ISIS in 2015? ISIS wow. in his So, like, yeah. what he says is pretty on point. And so, like I said before, one thing you cannot accuse Saddam of is not knowing his own country. He knew the three mm-hmm. culture groups well. He knew that if you ran as a secular Sunni, that was the way of keeping the country together. If you run as a devout Sunni, then that's going to put the Shias offside. If you run as a devout Arab, that's going to put the Kurds offside. Now, the Kurds in Saddam did have a lot of issue. Topic for another day. Saddam was brutal towards the Kurds. Yeah. But he knew his own country very well. Yeah, well, it seems like, I mean, Iraq was a like a pretty prosperous place and did well off uh you know selling their oil to america and then after that things just really got out of hand and of of course i think like saddam's rise to power as well is, is questionable and like ben said is yeah like a, a kind of questionable character really but also you like there's a bit of sympathy as well like of how things ended up and the, the thing is, the two can coexist. Yeah. They're two, those two things can be true at the same time. Saddam mm. can be a brutal tyrant, but he can also be the fact, like, it can also be true that his party was holding Iraq together. And you remove that glue, and now you question, do you just separate Iraq into three <laughs> different countries? Like, the two can mm. coexist at the same time. And often you look at debates. I, In preparation for the podcast, I rewatched a debate between Christopher Hitchens and George Galloway such a good debate not like they don't the arguments are pretty minimal but there is so much ad hominem and it is awesome to ad hominem's personal attack i was just about to ask (laughs) it is 
fantastic. They're yelling at each other, calling each other despicable. Um, basically, the, the debate is here's why you're inconsistent rather than let's debate the facts. But, yeah, basically, George Galloway's argument was we can't destabilize Iraq. Christopher Hitchens was Saddam Hussein's a horrible guy. Both can be true. Yeah. And also, in in a country that is much less socioeconomically advantaged than us in the West, brutal rule is not only more common, but is more so also more effective. Democracy and having institutions like courts that have fair trials often slows the process down of economic growth because you need to kind of go through like permit systems to get your pipeline and all that sort of stuff. So not just justifying any of what Saddam's done, but it is very easy for us to say from a privileged Western point of view, at least economically, here's why I need to have all these human rights provisions. And obviously I believe in human rights for every country across the world. I'm not yep. saying that I don't. Mm. But it is very easy for us to grandstand about human rights when we're in a place of economic privilege. And in this situation, it seems as if it's made things worse. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And Bush's justification is, well, the rights of the individual are protected. You've got the right to vote in the election. So, yeah, but you're also getting blown up by Sunni radicals. Like, yeah. what's... (laughs) Yeah. At what cost? (laughs) Yeah. Would you rather that or just have a leader that you didn't vote for that at least, you know, like free help? For, for them to provide free healthcare in the 70s is, like, probably revolutionary in yeah. that sort of... Um, he might have even beat Australia to it. Yeah, wow. Got with them episode. <laughs> <laughs> do go check out that, that one if you haven't already. And so we'll, we'll do one later on a guy called Colonel Gaddafi. Very, uh, yes. very I, similar story. I do remember writing a little behind-the-news piece BTN. way back in primary wow. school <laughs> about Gaddafi because I think it might have been around that time that he was... 2011. Yeah, yeah. So, We're, yeah, year five. Year five. I think it was right. Up, it was that was when he's killed, was he? Or <laughs> pretty, pretty heavy themes for year five. To yeah, I'm sure. Give I'm sure behind the news, life <laughs> we might need to a track bit. down that episode of BTN. I think, and uh, yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, it's not <laughs> our boys and girls better like primary school debate. Like cats first. Dogs. Oh yeah, no, it's, we was Obama's invasion of Libya justified mm, or not? We discussed the big issues. <laughs> well. I think we might call it there, boys. So that was a lot to take in. If you want to watch that video we were reacting to, just search on YouTube Bath Party Purge 1979 and it'll be the first result. If you have a spare $1.50, one way you could spend it would be to support the Mr. Mitchell History Patreon and you can get all sorts of bonuses such as extra content from Ben, PY and I, access to the podcast Discord, your vote in podcast topics and on the main channel you can nominate anyone you want to replace a historical figure in my videos. Want to see Nick Kyrgios as a cabinet member to John Howard? Want to see Paul Blard as Bill Clinton's key foreign policy advisor? For just $1.50, you can make that happen and support the podcast. Next week, we look at the rise of Xi Jinping within the Chinese Communist Party. No pun intended, but are you ready to take the red pill? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.